patriarchal nonsense. Originality, the podcast where we explore and talk about the roots of creativity and creative genius. I am one of your hosts, as always, Aline Sims. And also, as always, I am joined today by Kay Tempest Bradford. Hooray! Yay! Fresh off a research trip, K. Tempest Bradford. Yeah, literally yesterday <laughs> was when I ended. Gone for my like, research trip. You're you, you had a long trip. I thought it was gonna be like a week or something, but you were gone like a month, weren't you? It was, it was about three weeks. Okay, ish. Um, and yeah, I a week. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> a week is not enough time to get through all the things I need to get through. I feel I was saying right before we started recording, it feels like it's been 700 years since I talked to you, but it was really just before you left on your trip. So much has happened. Yeah, there's been a lot going down, a lot going down in the world. In the yeah. World. So are you, are you willing to share with everybody what your trip was about and, and why you went went on it? Sure. So um, this particular research trip uh, was to San Jose, California, the home of the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum and Rosicrucian Park. And the Rosicrucians are a group of, they're like a mystical philosophical order of people, and they have some beliefs and some feelings about things. And one of their beliefs includes... um, that they feel like the teachings that they have to impart upon the people come down to them all the way from ancient Egypt. Um, they they sort of date the beginnings of what, you know, eventually became this branch of Rosicrucianism to a specific pharaoh, Tutmosis III, and um, sort of the the flowering of that mystical ancient Egyptian wisdom uh, to a pharaoh that came a few generations later, Akhenaten. So Rosicrucian Park has a lot of buildings that are, the architecture is uh, directly influenced by ancient Egypt. They have, as I mentioned, uh, an Egyptian museum, which is very cool. And they have a research library. And some things that I learned while I was there is that the research library originally started out as the library for Rosicrucian University. So people who would come to learn about Rosicrucian uh, stuff in the university would use the, the library as part of their um, learning and researches. But now it is just a, a research library that is open to anybody. So if you're a Rosicrucian, if you're not, you can go to this library. So I'm writing a book that is um, it's historical fantasy set in ancient Egypt, set in, um, in and right before the dynasty that Tutmosis III belongs to um, and Akhenaten belongs to. One of the books in this series is actually going to be about Akhenaten. And so... A, a year ago, I was like, I should maybe visit Rosicrucian Park because uh, I have heard many things about how uh, their connection to Akhenaten and whatnot. 
And I sort of fell in love with the place because it's just, it's a really beautiful park if you ever have the chance to go, whether or not you're like particularly interested in Egyptian things, it is just like a beautiful space. And if you are interested in ancient Egypt, their museum is small, but it has a lot of really cool stuff in it. Uh, Definitely worth seeing. And then I said, okay, so I need to do some research on ancient Egypt. Perhaps the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum Library would be the place to go for such a thing. So I, um, from my Patreon, the money that I get from it, I use to save up for research trips. And so this was my first one that was based on Patreon money was to go to San Jose, California and stay in the area for about a month. It's not quite a month because I left at the end of it to to head off to a conference, but three-ish weeks um, where I just went to the Rosicrucian library every day that it was open and read books. So that is, that's what I've been doing for the past month. I had no idea that was there. I was in San Jose in what, June for Apple's worldwide developer conference. I had no idea, or I would have made a detour to see this, this museum at least because um, some of my earliest memories are actually reading books on e- ancient Egypt. Like my mom had these giant tomes full of like just pictures from like King Tut's tomb and like paging through these. So I would have loved to have seen that maybe next year. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, it's funny because I've been interested in Egypt for a very long time, but the way that I heard about this museum and park and stuff was a very sort of roundabout way. I was reading books on alternative Egyptology and then one of the books mentioned this place and I was like, huh. And I sort of filed that in the back of my brain. And then later on, I was like, wait a minute, San Jose is actually really close to San Francisco and I'm going to be in San Francisco. So maybe I should like go check this out. And now I'm like, where can I live in San Jose so I can go to this place every day? (laughs) It's an awesome place. Um, but what's, so the whole thing with this particular research trip, and, and I think that this one is, you know, Alima saying she thought it would be probably about a week. And in general, if I was like, say, oh, I want to go to this place to see these things, it probably would be about a week. But because this trip was all about like actually reading books, this is why it took a very yeah. long time because uh, there was a lot of, a lot of book reading. Um, but I was thinking about, some of the stuff that I they learned while I was researching and some of the things that, and I've mentioned this before, uh, that Jasper Ford had this really great talk on the this year's Writing Excuses cruise about, you know, the things that can that can add to your fiction that aren't necessarily like learning craft and, and just sitting in your butt and doing the thing, but like the, you know, that last 5%, you know, the adding the, the pop and sparkle that makes your fiction yours and makes your fiction interesting. And one of the things that he talked about was just basically like going out and experiencing things, going out and seeing things. And that is a lot of what, you know, these the travel research is about, is about fomenting your creativity by getting you out to to see specific things and whether or not they're things that relate directly to the things that you're trying to write now or things that can give you generate ideas it's just a good idea to like to to go places to see the things to to have new experiences you don't have to go halfway across the world you don't even have to go halfway across your country necessarily um sometimes it's just getting out of what is every day for you. Uh, and so that's what we were, we're going to talk about today is just like all the stuff that, you know, all the little things that 
when you go out and you, and you research and read things and go out and see things, how that bubbles up into creative awesomeness. So did you experience that with this trip? Like, did you, um, do you think maybe your, your work is going in, uh, not a direction you didn't anticipate, but like, what am I trying to ask Tempest? Did I discover something new and awesome that changed the entire foundations yeah, like, of my creative thought? Not, not the entire foundations, but um, I mean, obviously you were going on a research trip and you were there to learn and, and you know, make, make your work more realistic and authentic to, you know, this period of ancient, ancient Egypt. But like, did you feel yourself or have you noticed like a paradigm shift because of that? Because a lot of people like go to research or whatever and it doesn't shift their thinking. Uh, you know what I mean? Like they're so, they're so, um, staunchly into what they're into and so staunchly into those thought processes that they don't, they're not willing to, or they're unable to feel those shifts. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and I did experience, uh, several shifts while I was researching and a lot of it was actually thanks in part to the library itself. Um, I, no one ever taught me how to research. I'll, I'll start by saying that I have never been given any really good primer on best practices for research, which I feel like is a grand failure of my college education. One of the many reasons why I have feelings about the particular college that I attended and many of them aren't good, but so yeah, so I was never taught how to research. I also remember from very early in my attempting to research things um, for papers in college or, or things that I was trying to learn, becoming very frustrated with libraries because I would go into a library and I'll be like, okay, I'm looking for this book. And then I would want to sort of like browse the books around it. But I would find that like the book that I needed was, you know, in the, on this shelf, but then some of the other books around it weren't necessarily related in a way that I could discern to this book. And then like the other book that I needed was like all the way over in this other section. And it just, I just found it really hard to browse. Whereas like you go into a bookstore and you sort of like go to a shelf and you maybe find that one book and then all the other books around it relate. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's easy to just like sort of pick up and start sort of browsing and reading and finding cool things. So yeah, I just, I didn't understand how libraries worked. Um, but in this library, it's pretty small, uh, comparatively, like it's, it has like a ton of stuff in it. Um, but, but it's all pretty concentrated and there weren't only books on ancient Egypt in there. Um, there are books on philosophy, religion, the history of religion, science, social science, architecture, um, lots of other ancient world histories and, and things of that nature. But because the the library is pretty physically small. I was able to like go find the books that I knew that I wanted to read because I have a list, constant, constantly growing list of books that I, I discover that I need to read or, or should at least check out um, to see if they have the information that I need in them. And I would go and I would find those books and then I would start looking at the other books around those. And then sometimes I would just go to a shelf and be like, what's on this shelf? Let me look and see if there are any titles here that I think would be useful. And I, I did a lot of that. I browsed every single shelf in that library. And that was really super beneficial for me because I found a lot of books that did relate 
to what I was trying to research that I would not have necessarily known to go look for. Mm-hmm. So that I found that was really important. Um, and I guess probably this is what librarians are for. If if you go to a large library and you don't know what you're doing, this that would be the time to go up to a library and be like, hey, could you please help me? Um, because they probably under, well, probably, they definitely <laughs> they understand do, yeah. how these things work and how the books are shelves. And if you're looking for books that relate to this sort of broad thing, all the different places that you might find the stuff. Um, so because of that, I, I ended up finding and reading a lot of books that I would not even have necessarily known about. Uh, a lot of the books in this library are older. Uh, the The seed of the library was the personal library of the dude who started this branch of Rosicrucianism, and he uh, started it in like 1916 or something along those lines. So there are a lot of much older books in that library than I have been tended to find or even know about. And I I came across a lot of information that I felt was that that I just had no idea was out there because either it was part of older paradigms of Egyptology that had been sort of shoved aside or people didn't talk about that much in books that were about newer paradigms in Egyptology, or they were ideas that uh, modern Egyptologists rejected. And I'm like, don't reject that idea. This idea is amazing. Um, and also a lot of books, very early in Egyptology, there are a lot of books written by people who weren't necessarily archaeologists, mm-hmm. um, who weren't Egyptologists. Like, I found a really great book um, about, you know, with a theory of how the Egyptians built the pyramids, written by an, a naval engineer, like an American naval engineer who had been to Egypt several times and, nice. and was interested. And he was like, well, based on my, you know, knowledge of engineering and based on these things that I have been able to discover about Egyptian culture, here's the, here are the tools that I think they had. And here's how I think that they accomplished these things with these tools that, that they had. Um, that was, that was a very fascinating little book. Um, so I ended up shifting my thinking a great deal about particularly what I was going to do with the religion of the ancient Egyptians or the spirituality of the ancient Egyptians in my book based on the things that I read, especially the older works. Um, and also discovering cool things. Like I thought that I had invented, well, not that I invented, but a a long time ago I had a teacher who is a bit esoteric. He's okay. Not a bit. He was completely (laughs) esoteric. He was a wonderful esoteric teacher. And one time he told me, well, originally the pyramids were all covered in gold and the gold had um, hieroglyphs stamped on it. And it told the entire story of the people who came before the dynastic Egyptians. And it had all the information about their technology and whatever on it. And I was like, huh, Okay. And so for, I just, for a long time, I put that in the back of my head. And then when I started writing this book and I was thinking about, um, how the people in dynastic times would look at the pyramids and, and think about them or whatever, I was like, oh, what I'll do is I'll say, cause the, the pyramids that we see now are, are different than the way they looked in dynastic times because they used to, the the three big pyramids, well, actually all pyramids, but the ones that people can sort of envision, the three big pyramids that are behind the Sphinx, they used to be covered completely in limestone. Limestone, yeah. Yeah, and so they would like, they, were, they would like sparkle in the sunlight because limestone is very, you know, bright. And so they were covered in limestone. We know that for a fact. 
I said, so I was like, instead of saying, and then the limestone was covered in gold, because that's, that's a lot. <laughs> I was like, that limestone that was covering the, the pyramids had hieroglyphics carved in it. And those hieroglyphs were basically like three giant books about um, different aspects of this, this older culture. So one of the pyramids was the pyramid of engineering, math, science. One pyramid was about communication, language, et cetera. And one pyramid was about spirituality. And the three together, they were supposed to be all taken together. Um, and, and so that's why in my book, like that's where the, the main library is right by those pyramids. So I'm reading this little book about from this naval guy writing about the mechanical ways in which the ancient Egyptians might have built their pyramids. And then he said something like, you know, and it is well known that the limestone that was covering the pyramid had hieroglyphs written all over it. And you can still see some of it because when the people took the limestone from the pyramids to go build their houses, like, you know, you can see like these bits of limestone that are covered in hieroglyphics. Those are from the pyramids. And I was like, are you, what? Huh? (laughs) Seriously? I thought that somebody invented that idea, but apparently that, but that was so cool. That was such a cool find, but it's, uh, but again, that is also something that I have never read in any Egyptology book that I have read in modern times. Maybe they didn't think it was important to say, like, I don't know. I don't know. Um, But so, yeah, it was finds like that, that, you know, they were really great. And then there were other things that I found that completely inspired different aspects of things that I could add to my book, change the way that I think that, you know, some of the the plot points of character arcs are going to go. Um, so while that research was to, to basically allow me to have greater knowledge and understanding about specific facts, because I was sort of grabbing books off the shelves that looked interesting, I was able to like find new things that then went into my head and they're sort of like, they're still mixing right now and still processing a lot of the things that I learned. Wow. That's so exciting. And also I, I can't sleep now because I keep dreaming about ancient Egypt things. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, you, you know, you're processing them so coming up in yeah. your dreams. Yeah. So I guess the, th- the thing to say is like, you don't have to go on a research trip like this to find creativity and incorporate things into you know what you do um although nice bonus perk of writing a book about ancient egyptian uh ancient egyptians uh (laughs) well like i finding finding libraries that um that are small and focused on, or not necessarily focused, but like that come out of a specific idea of a library, because, you know, you have your main libraries, um, many, most, I would say all, all cities have like a big main library, right? And some smaller cities will, will have like a, a good main library with, um, good collections of books, um, and then, of course, like if you have your your major centers like New York City, Chicago, places like that will have even more. Like the New York City Public Library research collection is probably one of the greatest in the country. And, you know, just I couldn't even imagine um, what it would be like to just delve into that all the time. But it's also like an overwhelming number of books, right? Because it's not just on a, a narrow set of subjects. But like, yeah, I would say that finding those libraries 
that have some sort of focus that relates to the things that you're interested in um, could be useful, again, for that sort of like browsing experience where you can go and, and actually be able to like look at every book on every shelf, like, you know, not necessarily read every one, but you can look at all the titles, you can open up the ones that seem interesting and be able to get through them in a reasonable amount of time, um, which then can also lead to you finding a, a wider world of resources because you're going to be looking into the bibliography and notes of those books, but having like a smaller library to be able to go to with a focus or, or with a theme, uh, I feel like that can be, that's so useful. Like that, I, that has been just incredibly valuable to me as a researcher on this. And, and I've been researching this for like over 10 years and I found books in that library that I'd never heard of. Never. Oh, it's so cool. Um, yeah. And so, yes, uh, find a library, read, just read, just read. Reading, whether you're a writer or a composer or an artist or, you know, whatever, reading is like this amazing way to open yourself up, whether you're reading fiction or nonfiction or whatever. Um, I mean, I'm totally biased because I've always been a very voracious reader, but uh, it's it's the best thing you can do. It's the best thing you can do for creativity, I think, is just reading and learning different perspectives and hearing different stories um, will be hugely beneficial. Definitely. And, and also sometimes sort of going to the outskirts of the things that you're interested in. Like one of the best books that I found was a book on architecture um, in ancient Egypt and, and looking at, and, and I learned a lot about masonry because there was a whole section on this book that talked about how Egyptian masons did the things that they did and how we know that, like the, the marks that you can see still on these like giant granite blocks. Um, there, there are a lot of theories, but still no solid solid laws um, that tell us how the Egyptians were able to move such large stone uh, and then get such large stone way up in the air as for yeah. the pyramids. Um, but but there, are, there are a lot of people who have actually put like a lot of interesting thought into it, especially engineers. But um, yeah, I don't think that I, that I ever would have thought to go looking in books about architecture to discover some of the things that I discovered. I don't know that I would have gone looking even necessarily in books that were labeled philosophy for some of the things that I discovered, but, but I did, I found some cool stuff. I found hidden things. They're hidden. <laughs> well, not anymore. That's right. I found them. Um, I, I do think that one of the things that is often, that often happens when you're a creative person is that you are you are able to take like the weird things that that come at you and turn them into awesome art, but not everybody necessarily goes out to seek the weird things mm -hmm. um, or seek the those those sort of moments of finding something cool that then becomes a seed for things. Um, but but this is what again Jasper Ford was talking about is like do that, like go out and seek those things. And even if that means like going out to the the main library in your town and seeing what they have in their research stacks or or finding out, doing a little research on what is near you that that other people consider to be like a lifetime goal of going to see. Like I grew up in Ohio. Um, 
And Ohio, in my opinion, is the most boring place ever. Uh, and and I have I have very little love for it. But there are amazing archaeological finds in Ohio, usually relating to the Native American tribes that that are indigenous to that area um, of places now that that you know, people are like, what, you've never been to such and such a place? You've never been to the Serpent Mound? But it's it's glorious and you have to see. And I'm like, eh, I don't know. But then again, nobody ever told me as an Ohioan that they were there. There's people from elsewhere who had to tell me that they were there. So there's there's that too. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up um, in southwestern Colorado. And so it's like, it's ski resorts in like Mesa Verde. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> you know. You see, which is, which is awesome. And I, I want to go again, but, um, yeah, there's no matter how remote you are. Cause I lived in the sticks, you know, uh, there were cool things. There were definitely cool things. And my love of, I actually think my love of Egyptology, um, when I was little and looking through the books, um, is part of why I love Southwestern history today is because Southwestern U S history, I should specify since podcasts go worldwide, but, um, you know, in learning about native cultures and that kind of thing, and just being able to, you know, when I, when I drive home, um, there's this, this little place where you can kind of pull off into this rest area in Utah and, um, it's called Sand Island. And you can um, see just petroglyphs on on the face of the rock. You just go walk up to it. Um, I mean, it's been defaced and stuff over time, unfortunately. But, like, seeing something like that in person and, like, okay, like, this was probably done by, I actually don't know, the Anasazi. What, what were they doing? How did they reach 150 feet up? to create this thing did they build ladders and bring them with them did they have um was there pueblo nearby did did they just walk over with a ladder or whatever um because a lot of that stuff is undiscovered and a lot of that stuff has been plowed over at this point and made into fields and and that kind of thing and it's um if you're open to it you start thinking and considering things I think it's so easy for us to get mired in our day-to-day lives and our everyday experiences that we forget to consider that our experiences aren't the only experiences, um, in the modern age, let alone, you know, throughout history. Very true. Very true. And one of the things about researching, um, different cultures and ancient cultures is that you have to be aware not only of the cultural context of the people that you are or or the culture that you're researching, but also the cultural bias that's displayed by the people who are writing books about it. Um, It's a, it is, I, I can identify it very easily in Egyptology because I've been reading about Egypt for so long. Um, I don't know if I could necessarily like pinpoint it as quickly and as accurately when reading about you know, other different cultures. And so that is uh, often why I rely on people who are more well-versed in that to be like, no, don't read that book. No, don't read that author. They, you know, they have this cultural bias and I'm like, okay, cool. Um, So being, being aware of that. And, and as if you are, if you're doing any kind of research, um, it's always good to, to see if you can find people who can tell you um, if there are particular authors to stay away from or particular things to look out for. With ancient Egypt, it's basically a lot of um, people assuming Western 
modern or not even Western modern, just like Western concepts of things and applying them to ancient Egyptian thought uh, that gets people into a lot of trouble. Like for the longest time, I would read about ancient Egyptian myths, you know, about Isis and Osiris and what they're doing and Horus and Set. Um, I'm sure some of you are aware of that horrible movie, The Gods of Egypt, which is based on some of the more trifling aspects of those myths um, and also white Western nonsense. But what I didn't understand until actually quite recently is how much of what we, what has come down to us as this is the myth of this and this is the myth of that. And these are things that were going on in ancient Egypt are really just basically from the Greeks being like, huh, well, they, they have this feeling about, Isis and and they say that Osiris did these things and this god over here does this and this goddess over here does that and it's sort of like Zeus and it's sort oh. of like Hercules and it's sort of like this and so like the Greeks the ancient Greeks were like the first ones who really tried to like forge Egyptian mythology into the shape of their existing mythology to make it make sense, but Egyptian mythology literally does not work like that. It just doesn't. But the way that it is presented to us in the modern world is that it works like that. And they're like, well, these people had these myths. No, actually, that's not how, that's not how that worked. And that's not what those are. And that's not a narrative. That's, that's literally not a narrative. You've tried to hammer it into a narrative and it doesn't make sense. And you know why it doesn't make sense? It's not because the Egyptians don't make sense. It's because that's not a narrative. Uh, that's interesting. So I'm sure that my view of Egyptian mythology is very much, well, it is because it was like, you know, like you were saying this, um, you know, this is the analog of Zeus and this is the analog of Hera and this God is the analog of whatever. And, um, that probably, probably doesn't make sense. And I literally never stopped to think about it until just now, which is an oversight. Right. And, and that's the thing. It's like, unless you're actually looking very deeply into it, there's not necessarily a reason to, to wonder about that because it's just presented as being so matter of fact. Um, and this is the other thing that, that I find very frustrating when doing research, when reading books um, about any kind of um, anthropological or archaeological subject that's written for the layman, um, which are the ones that I tend to have to read because despite all of my, you know, research into this, I still don't, I'm not fully, I'm not an academic. And so academic ease is not particularly useful. It's hard to understand. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I read a lot of books that are meant for the layperson, the layman, the layperson. <laughs> and, you know, these authors tend to like state facts, state things as if they are facts without giving any sort of like backup to it. And in part because they are stating what the, what the paradigm is um, in their discipline but without explaining where they got that from, because they're like, well, I don't need to explain that to you because it's an accepted paradigm in, you know, my discipline. And that's really unfortunate and annoying. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things doing research with older books has shown me is that those uh, facts are actually not were not always accepted and different facts were accepted. Different theories were put forth earlier And 
even though we have this idea that, you know, the march of knowledge means that we're much smarter now than we were even 100 years ago, um, I'm not entirely sure that is true, especially in this case. So do you have examples, like, front of mind of of some things that you learned were theories 100 years ago that um, modern Egyptology has cast aside? Well, there's a, a lot of um, stuff that has to do with what the purpose of the different um, pyramids are and the purpose of the different temples and and also the age of things. So in, in the older books, I found a lot more uh, flexibility from the people who were looking at the, the pyramids and the Sphinx and whatnot uh, in terms of how old they thought things might be. Um, and for instance, when for a long time, the Sphinx was covered up to its neck in sand. Like, the, like now when we see pictures of it, we see the whole body. Um, but if you look at older um, drawings of it and even some older, like very old photographs from like the early, early 1900s, um, you'll see the Sphinx covered up almost entirely by sand. You just see the head. Um, and then eventually they started digging out the sand from around it um, and discovering that it was like a whole body. When and this happened multiple times, like there was some digging out of the Sphinx very early on, and then the people went away and it got covered by sand again. I read um, something somewhere that said it only takes about 35 years if you dig out the Sphinx completely, but then you just went away for 35 years and, and you came back, it would be completely covered by sand again. It only takes about 35 years for the sand to just come on in and encroach. That's just the way uh, things roll in the desert in Egypt. So, um, so they had uncovered it either completely or partially at one point, and then the sand came back again, and then there were more uh, attempts to to uncover it, and that's when they they found some uh, artifacts associated with it. And one of them is uh, what they call a stella. It's like a big sort of tomb-shaped, large piece of stone that tells the story of a pharaoh from the New Kingdom, Tutmosis IV, um, who was out hunting one day, and he stopped to rest under the head of the Sphinx, fell asleep, and had a dream where the Sphinx was like, hey, if you will please remove all the sand from around me and um, do this other thing, then you can be the king. Because this dude, he was a prince, but it, he wasn't the oldest, and so he wasn't necessarily in line to be the king. But the Sphinx was like, if you do this, I'll, I'll make you king. He's like, cool. So he does. Um, and then he did end up becoming the king. Um, and so then he erected this, this stone thing that, you know, basically recounts this story. But in older books, they're, they're like, well, um, we're not entirely sure if that king is actually the one who's responsible for putting this in between the paws of the Sphinx. Hmm. Like, that's where we found it. But we think that it actually might have been um, from the 21st or 22nd dynasties instead of the 18th dynasty, which this king belonged to. Um, and it's sort of a, because that was passed down as a legend. Mm. So they knew the story of that. So I think that, so, so there was some thought that he actually didn't put it there. It was actually much, much later people who created that and put it um, between the Sphinx's paws. Today, you will not hear that story. Like if you read most modern books, they're like, yes, Tutmosis IV, not only did this happen to him, but he then carved this and put it in between the paws of the Sphinx when he became the king. Huh. 
And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. interesting. Um, but sometimes, sometimes the the march of <laughs> the march forward produces better things. Um, and the biggest one I can think of with that is the story of Queen Hatshepsut. And Hatshepsut was um, unusual in Egyptian history because she was a woman, but she was also the pharaoh. Generally, you don't find that. Pharaohs tend to be dudes. But she's not the only woman who has ever been the pharaoh, although I think uh, upon first discovering her, that was the thought that she was the only or she was the first. Because then Mm -hmm. we had Cleopatra, because Cleopatra was like, no, I'm the pharaoh. Everybody get out of my way. Um, And then Romans ruined everything. But (laughs) Hashepsut, 18th dynasty as well. Um, And if you read some of the older stuff uh, about her when around the time when they were first discovering her and her funerary complex um, and the temples that she built, it became clear very quickly that she was a woman and she was the pharaoh. And there's like a whole story behind that. But the thing that I find interesting is that the early Egyptologists were like, well, clearly she was evil. Clearly she usurped the throne from her nephew's stepson, the, whoever Tutmosis III is, changes in the minds of everybody, whether she was the nephew, the stepson, the whatever. Um, she usurped the throne. She usurped all his titles. She you know, did things that she wasn't supposed to do because she was a woman and she was like wearing the beard of the king and doing all these things. And so when she died, her stepson, Tutmosis, who then became the pharaoh, was like, she was the worst and we're going to hack her face of all her statues. We're going to hack her name out of everything and because she was wrong. And also, even though she was the pharaoh and she was the one who was pictured on the things and it said that she had these things built, really we think it was like these men who were around who were really in charge. Like these men must have been the real power behind all of this. And they, they were the ones who like used her as a puppet to usurp the throne. So like you'll see Hatshepsut described in this way all the way up until probably about the 2000s is when you start to see people being like, well, uh, maybe it wasn't quite like that. And um, Kara Cooney, who's an Egyptologist, uh, recently wrote a book, I think it was 2015, 2014, called The Woman Who Would Be King. That was about Hatshepsut. And and she very explicitly states in the introduction to this book, she was like, it, it's amazing that Egyptologists malign her in this way and make these assumptions about how it couldn't have been her. Meanwhile, she did all these amazing things. She reigned for 20 years. This is one of the most you know, prosperous times in the early 18th dynasty, and she set the stage for all the prosperity that came after. <laughs> and so you're going to, how are you going to say... And so, and, and that's why I haven't read all the way through that book, but, but I, I bought that book on the strength of that in the introduction of the book. Um, so, yeah, so you, you get it on both way, both sides, you know, some things older people believe that nobody will talk about now, which I don't necessarily think that people should have set aside these notions and some things are clearly based on patriarchal nonsense, uh, which is being corrected now. Patriarchal nonsense. Yeah. So but but these are these are also the things that like make historical research interesting because then it it gives you more of a 
it, it widens the way that you can think about what was going on in the past. And it also widens your possibilities for being like, well, even though I've been told by these books here that this is exactly the way that it was, these books over here clearly show that like, not only do we not even know exactly the way it was, but there were a lot of different ideas about the way that it was. So I can pick my idea out of all these ideas for how it was, as long as I can construct something around it that makes, you know, that is, has psychological veracity Mm -hmm. in my world. But I don't have to, I don't have to stick to just like what that one guy said, dudes, Egyptologist dudes. I have, I have so many feelings, (laughs) so many. Uh, All right. So, so libraries are awesome. And viewing, like going to see things around you, like local to you or local-ish to you, um, is another way to to glean inspiration. Um, I'm also thinking like Wikipedia surfing. And I know Wikipedia isn't, you know, it's not the be all end all, but as a starting place, looking at articles and, you know, going down the Wikipedia uh, sinkhole, um, but also looking at the things that people reference in the articles is actually a really interesting exercise. <laughs> um, and it's a good way to kind of start discovering things that you maybe didn't know um, in a way that, you know, is actually like sourced and backed up. Yeah. I'm, you know, the, the references are actually the best part of all Wikipedia articles because, you know, there are things, there, there there's so many things that are going on in Wikipedia that you're like, "Mm, but why are you okay? Uh, looking at the talk pages sometimes of Wikipedia articles is fun because that's when you see the fights. I don't think I've ever (laughs) actually done that on purpose, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's sometimes interesting to watch people have, Sometimes they're arguments, but sometimes they're just discussions about whether or not something should be included and why, um, how a reference came to be added, you know, to the bottom of a, of a Wikipedia article, things like that. Um, sometimes looking at the history of the Wikipedia article to see what, how, how the information on it has changed and why mm-hmm. uh, can be very interesting. But yes, always the references. Um, and sometimes reading Wikipedia articles can make you curious about what's not included in the article. Yeah. Like and I remember I was reading an article about the Egyptian goddess uh, Seshet. And so Seshet is not one that you necessarily would hear a lot about if you are sort of um, basically in, informed about Egyptian mythology because there, there don't seem to be a lot of stories about her. Um, Sachet was, and she's also like, they, they do this thing where they're like, and this God was the husband of this goddess. And this, and it's like, actually they're just paired up because they're too, okay. They're, they're the, they're the masculine and feminine aspects of that idea. Okay. never mind. Yes. They're uh. married. Mm-hmm. So she's married to Toth. Uh, <laughs> that's usually how you'll see it, uh, described, but so when she is depicted, she is depicted with this seven pointed thing on top of her head. And then there's sort of like an arc or a bow that goes on across the top of the seven pointed thing. So I was reading Wikipedia and I was reading where 
they were like, what is a seven-pointed thing? Well, some people say that it's a star, except for when the Egyptians depicted stars, they usually depicted them as like five-pointed things, uh, and, and hers has seven points. And some people say that it's the marijuana leaf and that Sashat is the oh. patron saint of people who are smoking some some marijuana. And I'm like, that doesn't even make any sense, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you'll see, like, there is, I actually found through clicking the references in the Wikipedia article, a webpage about how Sashat was told Totally, like she's like trying to tell everybody that smoking some doobies is, is is the way to go. The patron saint of getting stoned. Yes, and so I was like, okay, perhaps I should look into whether or not <laughs> other people have had some things to say about what this this thing is on top of Seshat's head. And so I did a Google search, and I can't even remember what my terms were, but eventually I came across an academic paper um, that was probably on academia.edu that where the guy postulated that the thing that was on top of Seshat's head was actually um, both a tool and also an indicator of time. Because the, the place where we see Seshat depicted most is in conjunction with something called the stretching of the cord ceremony, which is depicted on temple walls. And the stretching of the cord was basically, it was partly ceremonial and partly not ceremonial, like partly real, um, where they would determine the, the foundation of a temple by orienting it to a specific astronomical um, event or, um, cardinal direction. Okay. (laughs) I was was losing my words there for a second. So, because the Egyptian temples actually all are, are oriented in very specific ways, depending on who the temple was for, what the, what the temple was for. So they had to be very accurate. Um, and like, for instance, the, the largest of the three pyramids behind the Sphinx, um, is facing like exactly cardinal directions. Like it's it's off by like some very, very small degree um, in one of the directions, but it's like north, south, east, and west exactly. And that's not um, a mistake and it's not a coincidence. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and it's the same way with a lot of different temples, like the way that they are oriented is very specific. So the person who was representing Seshat, who is most likely um, an architect uh, was was the one who would with the with the pharaoh um, stretch a long piece of rope to to ensure that the foundations were being laid in a straight line. You know huh. that's how they did straight lines. Like they took a piece of rope, they held it taut, and they were like straight line. Um, and because over long distances, you, that's what you would need to do. Uh, so they used a rope for that, and so that's what the that's the cord that was stretched. Then he talked about how on different depictions of Sashat, the little bow thing above her head either curved all the way down to the bottom of the the seven-pointed star or whatever, or it curved over just the top three points of it. And by um, doing field work 
at the different temples where he saw these depictions, he was able to determine that the thing on top of her head is actually some sort of tool for measuring um, direction, like measuring north, south, east, west, and that the, the bow, the placement of the bow was indicative of what time of year they made that measurement. So if it was at the summer solstice or the winter solstice or one of the equinoxes. And so... And he did all of this just through, like, looking at that, looking at those temples, looking at how they were oriented. And he was like, this is the whole reason why Seshat looks like this. And this is the whole reason why the bow on the head is different. And so that's literally not, it's not a marijuana leaf. <laughs> it's not a star. It's its her tool. Like, it's one of her architect tools. And I was like, I love that. This is so awesome. But it's not in the Wikipedia article yet. I'm going to add it at some point. Um <laughs> But but yes, but I found that because of going to the references of the Wikipedia article and just being like, I don't know, guys. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> that is so cool. I love it. I love it so much. See, research can be fun. Yes. I <laughs> research can give you ideas. As a matter of fact, like that research is the reason why the um the main women in my story are their architects and engineers. They're the sisters of Seshat. That is why they are the sisters of Seshat. Cause I think p- before I had said, well, they, they're probably um, connected to Ptah or Pite, um, because he um, was the, was very involved in craftsmanship. So like the Masons would have been, you know, more aligned with Ptah, but um, when I was, when I conceptualized them as being engineers and architects, it was like sort of related to that, but not exactly. And then when I discovered the thing about Sasha, I was like, ha ha. So that's, that's what they're doing over here. I was going to say, I knew the name when you said it. And I was like, maybe it was in Stargate because they use a lot of <laughs> Egyptian. They uh, really did. They really did. <laughs> oh, Stargate. I love Stargate, <laughs> but, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Daniel Jackson and his patriarchy. I don't know. Um, yeah. Anyway, I don't know what I was going to say. <laughs> I love it. I love that. Um, I don't know. It resonates with me that in this era where, where, you know, people are talking about how non-male people are, you know, non-cisgender men are, unequipped to have careers in STEM that uh, Egypt had a god who was like basically the goddess of architecture, which is amazing. I love it. Yeah. It's, it has been um, very interesting to, to discover all these different things that I wouldn't have necessarily looked for if I just sort of read the early books that I read and accepted everything that they had to say about it, about Egypt. it was it was through digging deeper that I was able to find this stuff. And then through that, being able to sort of like tilt my head to the side and be like, I don't know if that sounds right, guys. Let's let's explore this a little bit further. Um, but and probably there's also a lot of um, interesting, cool stuff like that sort of trapped in academic papers that isn't then like translated out into the real world, the, the real world, the non-only <laughs> academic world. Um and I and I only happened to be able to read that paper because it was for free on academia.edu. Not every paper is free on there. Yeah, uh, as I am reminded all the time when I go looking for papers that they say, you have to go behind the paywall for this. And I'm like, no. 
Yeah. But probably I should. It, but but it's, uh, I get it. On one hand, I get it. But on the other hand, it's like, for one thing, academic papers are so hard to read if you're a lay person. Um, and for another thing, they're so hard to get. So it's like I'll read studies on, you know, whatever, being uh, researching autoimmune disease or whatever. I'm trying to dive deeper into like for my own health and not being able to read a whole study because it's like, here's the abstract. It's like, yeah, but, you know, and then, you know, I don't know. It's so hard. I feel that pain. Yeah, it is. It is. But academic publishing, ooh, that's a whole, it's a whole other, there's like, there's stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff involved in that. It goes pretty deep. So that's, and that's one of the things where, you know, researching can be difficult in that many of the more interesting things that, that you may want to know or find or whatever are sort of like trapped in, in the world of academic publishing in which like it's hard to access or it costs a lot of money to access. Um, you may not even know about it because it doesn't necessarily show up in, in a search and it doesn't necessarily show up even in the books in the library because, you know, not every library is going to have every dissertation in it. Um, right. You know, so that's a whole thing. Having guides helps a lot. Um, so if you can find somebody who can be your guide to all of these things, you know, treasure them because, woo, woo. Yes. Librarians, be kind to your local librarians <laughs> because they can, yes. they can set you. I mean, they may not know exactly who to go to, but they can set you in a direction that might introduce you to those, those experts um, and those, those guides and whatever uh whatever thing you need to know more about yep oh one thing I did want to say um because you know as we were talking about uh going on research trips and going going out to see things and you don't necessarily have to go very far afield but sometimes you will want to um or or feel like you need to and in in those cases there is actually help um I applied for I still haven't heard back from and I can't remember now if the deadline for this year has passed, but they do this every year. There is uh, an organization called the Speculative Literature Foundation, and every year they give out several grants, and one of the grants they give is called the Gulliver Travel Grant. And it is specifically for um, writers of speculative fiction who want to go to places um, to, to be able to do some sort of research, you know, whether it's, you know, you want to go to a location um, so that you can see what, that, you know, really looks like for real, like not just on Google Earth and not just in pictures, but like to see it, to be able to say, go to um, a local library that has research material on this this specific thing that you're trying to research. Um, but, you know, recognizing that sometimes you just need to be in a place in order to like rev, rev up those creative juices. And so um, I believe at the moment that the travel grant is about $800, um, so it, you know, depending on where you want to go, it may not pay for everything, but you know, for a lot of people that will actually like get them a plane ticket and, and possibly pay for part of the hotel, um, or Airbnb stay. Um, they're not the only organization that does that. That's the one that I know about because I write speculative fiction and because I've applied. Um, but there are other grants like that, um, 
there's one grant or not a grant, but a fellowship, which I've applied for and many fancy people get this. So it's not necessarily like you too, person who's never written anything can get this, (laughs) but something to keep in mind um, as sort of like the other extreme end of of this sort of funding is that the New York public library has fellowships um, where you can apply and you're a writer, a researcher, an artist of some kind, and you need to utilize the research resources of the New York Public Library. Um, and so they give you uh, $50,000. You stay there for an academic year, so it's like nine, 10 months. Um, and you are given an office inside of the library with lions. That's the research library, the one with the lions that everybody knows. Um, you're given an office in there, and then you are given... Um, the freedom to request any of the research, you know, volumes and they'll bring them to your office. Wow. <laughs> and so you can, and, and so, yeah, so like, because it's those, those research books, like you can, if you're a member of the New York city public library, like you can go to that library and um, get those research books and read them while you're there. You're like, you can't check them out obviously because they're non-circulating. You can get access to them, but like with this, uh, fellowship, you can actually have those books brought to your office and then they can stay there until you're done with them. Um, and, and I can only assume that you get a lot of library and help, um, with your research. Uh, and they have, as I said before, like a really amazing and deep research collection on a lot of different subjects. So, you know, there, there's that. So, in between things like the SLF travel grant and that highfalutin thing from the New York Public Library, there are also many other grants that you can get for the specific purpose of of going um, to places for research for writers and other artists. So definitely check check that out. Like look for those opportunities if you do not necessarily have the the financial means to go and visit the places um, that can that can bubble up stuff, uh, for your creative projects. Um, cause if, if you can take the time and not everybody can take the time, like that's a real thing, mm-hmm. but if you can take the time, you can find some organizations that you can apply to provide the funding. Yeah. I think we think of writing as, you know, the, I don't know. I have the mental image of the harried, you know, guy from the sixties drinking a lot of whiskey and smoking a lot of cigarettes. And people think of, of that. A lot of people, I think, think of that kind of thing. Um, when they think about write, writing specifically and that it's, you know, it's an uphill battle and you got to do it yourself. And that's true to an extent, but there are programs that exist to help you do what you need to do to get that, you know, started with writing. So get that book out or, you know, get that series of portraits done or, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you're working on. Um, and I think I forget often that these kinds of fellowships and, and, um, grants exist. Yeah. I, I feel like with a lot of them, it sometimes feels a little insurmountable because, there, there are a lot of them, but sifting through like which ones apply to you, which ones you can apply to. Some of them require money to apply to. Some of them don't. Um, and, and just learning about all of them can sometimes feel overwhelming. But if you can find other people who do them, um, who can sort of like give you their wisdom on, oh, this is how I got started doing it. Or these are the people that I follow. These are the websites that I go to. It used to be this information was like super locked up. Like there would be books. I remember in college, like 
finding the books that sort of listed all of these grants and opportunities and whatever, but then you'd have to buy the book the next year to get the updated list. Um, There were sometimes online databases, but then for a long time, at least the people who published this, this one book that I had in order to access that database, you had to pay a certain amount of money, um, which makes sense. Like, you know, it is not sort of magical that these databases exist. Um, And, and it does, require some labor. But at the time I was like, I really can't afford to pay this amount of money to get access to this thing. Now there, um, actually are, are more databases that are free. Um, Alliance of Artists Communities is one that lists a lot of residency and fellowship, um, applications or opportunities. Um, and I see, um, a lot of websites that are that are for writers will sometimes put up an article saying, oh, here are the 12 grants and fellowships that you should know about um, and, and you should apply for. And so it, it does seem, sometimes seem like an overwhelming thing. But again, once again, finding guidance, finding other people who, who maybe know about it, who can point you to their sources uh, can be helpful. And then just setting rules for yourself around it, like for me. I don't apply to things that cost more than $30 to apply to. Mm-hmm. And I prioritize the ones that are free to apply to. Um, and that means that sometimes I miss out on things that are that are potentially pretty awesome opportunities, but also I'm not made of money. Yeah. And and this is not to begrudge those organizations that charge more than $30 for these because they, again, they got to pay the administrative fee somehow. So I understand, but, you know, I had to make the, the hard, you know, line for me being that amount of money. And then I also have like amount of money a month. I will not spend on these things just because of my budgetary limitations. So don't, don't be afraid to say, I, I'm not going to apply for that because it costs $50 to apply to, and I really don't have the $50. Don't get into the thinking that you have to apply to everything in order to be able to get the opportunities. Yeah. Application fees are so, so frustrating. So frustrating. They are. They are. Well, was there anything else that, that comes to mind when you're thinking about um, research and research trips and that kind of thing? Um. Well, the the other thing is in terms of one of the research trips that I want to take that I'm working toward for next year is actually going to Egypt. And the reason for that is because I feel like I really can't describe some of the places that my characters exist in without having stood in those places. And even though they're not going to be exactly the same as they were in dynastic times, like I need to stand next to the pyramids right? <laughs> in order to be able to accurately describe standing next to pyramids. So that that's a goal that I have. Um, and not every writer is like that. Some writers can like actually look at pictures and be able to like envision it in such a way that they can describe. Um, some writers get really good at using Google Earth and Google Earth is so useful in so many ways. So mm-hmm. um, this, this is, I think, this personal to me. But I also have discovered that I'm able to get some of that sense of things from not necessarily having had to visit Egypt. For instance, um, on the Writing Excuses cruise this year, we went to a bunch of different places around the Baltic Sea. Um, I got to go to St. Petersburg, Russia, which is amazing. Um, And I also got to go to Tallinn in Estonia. And in both of those places, 
I had these moments where I was like, oh, I can, I can totally use this. You know, I was, we were walking along one of the rivers or yeah, I guess it's a river, um, in St. Petersburg. And I was looking at the way that like all these amazing, impressive buildings were built right on the water and thinking about how, you know, that must've been how it was in Egypt where they were just like put these buildings right at the edge of what, where the Nile would be when it was inundated because they couldn't put it any closer because they would just wash away. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, so as you're like going down the Nile on a boat, you would be like faced with all these amazing stone creations um, and and I got a sense of how that must have been like by being in St. Petersburg. Uh, I was walking through Tallinn, and Tallinn, the old part of Tallinn, is very much the same as it was in medieval times. And walking down like these narrow streets with these like buildings that weren't like super tall, but because the streets are so narrow, it feels like the buildings are just like crowding in on you. Um, and I was like thinking about how this must have been very much like walking through a town in Egypt. Um, because when you're not with the palaces and you're not with the temples, you're just in these areas where there's just like a bunch of houses piled up right on top of each other in these narrow streets. You know, the, you didn't have a lawn if you were just like some guy. You right. know? <laughs> um, and so I got a sense of like what it, what it might have been like to walk down the street. Um, in in that kind of place while I was in Estonia. When I was in uh, San Jose at the Rosicrucian Park, as I said, a lot of the buildings, or yeah, a lot of the buildings there are based on um, Egyptian architecture specific, like not just inspired by, but they're like, this building is the same exact, you know, proportions and style of this building over here in ancient Egypt. Um, And one of the cool things they have in the park is a recreation of a garden from one of the palaces um, of the 18th dynasty. So I'm standing in this garden and I'm looking out and there's like this beautiful pond and there's like a little shrine off to one side and then these rows of plants and whatnot. And I was able to like really put myself in a place. And, you know, and that was a recreation, a very specific recreation, but I didn't have to go all the way to Egypt to be able to experience that. So, you know, looking for, you know, analogs that can give you a sense is is sometimes just as important, I think, as like going to the actual place, um, particularly when you can't always get to the actual place um, for whatever reason. So, so yeah, like look, I I would say looking for those opportunities is just as important too. I mean, it caught me by surprise. Like the thing about St. Petersburg Italian caught me completely by surprise. But now that I know to look for it, I I can think about like the other places where I go and just like remember what it's like, what it's like to be there and and how I can maybe use that in art someday. I love that so much that one that you were able to make that connection in time to realize it, right. Instead of, I don't know, like six years later being like, oh yeah, I guess that was (laughs) maybe kind of similar to what it would have been like. Um, (laughs) but, but I think, um, it's another method of like creative problem solving too, right? Like, so this isn't in Egypt. It's definitely not in ancient Egypt because, you know, obviously we can't go back. Oh, now I want a time machine. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, so, but, but hey, look, this is, this is close to what that may have felt like. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, 
I'm very fortunate in that I have gotten to experience a lot of really amazing things um, in the past few years, either because of just like getting random opportunities um, or as with this particular trip, um, having enough money from my Patreon to be able to to go and do it. Like I don't know that I would have been able to have the financial resources to do it in the way that I did it um, in the way that was most effective. Um before making that decision to like make my Patreon into like research trip money. So thanks patrons. You guys are the best. Yeah. And we'll have a link to that Patreon in the show notes so that those of you who are not, um, Patreon supporters can become Patreon supporters. Maybe fund a trip to Egypt. That would be awesome. I gotta go. (laughs) You gotta go. You do. All right. Well, I think that is our show for this week. Well, two weeks because it's a biweekly show. Um, so, yeah, you can find us on Twitter. Um, I am at Aline. That's A-L-E-E-N. And you can find Tempest at Tiny Tempest. And the show is at Originality uh, FM. And let us know if you're going to do NaNoWriMo this year. I think I am That's not. That's right. What? No, I am no, not. Wait, wait. I am not. Hold up. <laughs> Hold up the outro. We got to go back. Hold up. Rewind. Why? Why I, aren't we doing NaNoWriMo? Um, well, so one of the things that I haven't been able to talk a lot about is um, I am managing an Indiegogo campaign for a nonprofit that I am um, very passionate about. It's App Camp for Girls. And if you listen to me on other podcasts, you've heard me talk about it, but it's, um, well, on this podcast too, it's it's a summer camp. Um, it, I put on the Phoenix version of it. Um, and we basically, we need money to be able to continue to do this. So I'm managing that campaign, which is ending the middle of November. And that's taking a lot of time and effort. Um, there's also my business. There's also teaching. Um, there's also like the house needs to be cleaned sometimes technically I'm told. Um, so I just, I, this year has so much going on in November that, um, maybe, you know, maybe I'll do a March version of it instead or something, but I don't think November, this November is my, my November to do it. Um, so I'm sorry, but I, I am, I am going to dedicate myself to something that I have stopped doing, which is I'm going to write for 30 minutes every day in a paper journal. Um, so I'm going to do that every day in November. Not quite, you know, it's, it's not 1600, 667 words a day. Um, but I am going to write something every day and, um, I will like, I'll track progress on that on social media. Um, But yeah, but if you're going to do NaNoWriMo or some kind of creative project in November every day, let us know so that we can kind of maybe do check-ins or something like that. I know a couple of people uh, listened to the show with Jason, um, which I'll put in the show notes again, and they did uh, IncoWriMo, which is... The no Inko Remo is in February, isn't it? That's the letter writing one. No, they did um, um October. October, thank you. Yes. So every day in October they decided to do a sketch. I would love to see sketches kind of at originality FM on Twitter. Um so yeah, let us know if you've got, you know, a, a creativity challenge that you're going to do. Uh we'd love to to see what's happening with that. Um so I'm sorry if I broke hearts, but um It's okay. I'm pretty sure you sh- gotta I'm pretty stressed. Do what you do. <laughs> I'm pretty stressed. Yeah. I don't need to add that to it. 
No, um, no, it's totally understood. That's and that's one of the things you got to make sure that that the things that you're doing fit into your your life, yeah, or, or else you're not going to do them. Yep, yep, and yeah. and that, it's hard, and um, I don't know, maybe finding balance and all of that is something that we can have as a show topic because I know it's something that creative people struggle with, especially those, you know, people who are, you know, working day jobs and taking care of families and also trying to do their creative thing. Um, or, you know, like me where I'm doing like 75 million things and I look around at the end of the day and wonder what I've done. Um, but it's been a lot, you know, I don't know. It's challenging. There's, there's a lot of challenge, but, um, maybe a show idea. Um, so I guess until next time for now, until next time. Bye guys. Bye.